Good morning. Uh, can we say that one more time? You guys did great. First time, I just need, like, energy. So that's all I needed right there. Look at that. <laughs> Love people to play along. It's, uh, hey, it's good to see you guys. Um, I don't know if you guys are sick and twisted like, uh, like I am, but I kind of like church, you know? I mean, it's, I know that's a minority, you know, out there that actually like going to church on Sunday morning. I like going to church on Sunday morning. So it's kind of cool to see you guys. So, hey, if you've got a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. And we're going to, we don't normally speak on Proverbs, but you'll kind of see later in the service kind of where I, where I was going in terms of thinking about this, but just want to kind of share this morning about one of my life verses and kind of unpack it. But it's Proverbs chapter 11, and it's a real simple, easy to memorize kind of little phrase here. Proverbs 11, verse 25. And it simply says this, uh, this. We're going to take the second half of the verse. Proverbs 11, verse 25. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. It's a verse I came across back when I was in seminary, and I don't memorize things really well. I'm kind of a big, big picture thinker, and so the details don't really stick with me. But this one was like right up my alley. You know, it's written in second, second grade in English and all that other stuff, and so it's easy to memorize. So it's like whenever... You know, you know how Christian people like to show how, how Christian they are, you know? And so whenever people were quoting verses, I'd always spout this one, you know, ah, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed, you know? And that way I could kind of play along. But so that was my big verse back when I was in seminary. And, and it really grabbed me and started trying, uh, began to kind of affect how I saw the world. I mean, it's a fascinating little concept. And for a while there, like, I'd see homeless people and, um, I'd give them like 20 bucks. And I had this, this theory that I'm not responsible for how people, you know, use money. I'm responsible for like my state of compassion. And it was really funny because I, I didn't have any money at the time. And I remember my dad and sister being with me once in Pasadena. And they looked at me really strange. And then it occurred to me that, because I only made 300 bucks a month at the time, that the real reality was that at the end of the month, I was just going to turn around and ask my dad for 20 bucks more. And he knew that, you know, like, I mean, it's all nice and well that you're, you're doling out 20s, but, you know. So my dad's actually the most generous person I know. But it was kind of this thing of trying to figure out what does this really look like about, you know, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Now, I think the first place we notice it is, is with affirmation. And... I'm, I'm convinced that we're all affirmation junkies. I, I got that phrase from a pastor back at the church in California I used to work at. And this guy was a man's man, uh, had been a, a hippie, and was slinging ski, uh, like uh, bumping chairs in, in Colorado uh, as a hippie and got saved and then went from there to being a missionary in Jordan for like 25 years. So it's this crazy like life story. But he's a total man's man, was doing men's ministry after all these years. And you typically think of men's, uh, guys that you would consider like a man's man, strong, as not needing anything. And what was funny about this guy is is he had this phrase, uh, we're all affirmation junkies. He would just walk into any room and just declare that he needs affirmation, uh, demand it from you, and, and you'd give it to him. And you never thought that he was weak or insecure or, or weird. And he kind of created this climate where it became okay to need affirmation or, or to be aware that we all need affirmation. Because the reality is, is we don't, we all need it, we all want it, but we, we don't talk about it. Because if you talk about it, then you're, you're weak or you're weird or you're, you're creepy. And so we play these games of, we go into social environments and we, we kind of go fishing for it. You know, we say certain things. We posture a certain way. We, we kind of throw out the first half of something so that people will grab hold of something, and then maybe they'll give us the affirmation. We, we really go hunting for affirmation because we're all affirmation junkies. And what was cool about this guy, Lee Barton, was he made, made it to where it was kind of acceptable to just walk in and start affirming people 
and, and just to kind of know that in that climate, um, people are going to affirm you too. Be aware that you were there. Be aware of your strengths. Be aware of um, the fact that it matters that you're there. And so it's kind of a fascinating thing just seeing how he created this climate. And what I learned in that whole deal is uh, not only he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed, but encouragement or affirmation is contagious. It's something that kind of goes round and round, that when we are always going fishing for people to affirm us, it never really seems to be there, and we're always empty or a little bit hungry. But when we're in a culture where affirmation and encouragement happens, it tends to just go around and it finds everybody. You know what I'm talking about? It's that power of kind of positivity. Now, here's the interesting thing about this principle. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed or or positivity, or affirmation, or encouragement. It's a Christian biblical principle, but we, and we all kind of know it, but we begin to kind of lose the value of it in the packaging or the expression. Let me see if I can kind of unpack that a little bit more. There are things that are true, we know them to be true, but when we see them, or, or when they're manifested, the way they're presented um, brings in things that we don't necessarily like. So I think for a lot of Christians, the, the bright, um, shiny Christians, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? Like the, that are like annoyingly bright, shiny Christians or, um, or, or socially awkward, bright, shiny Christians or, or too many cliches on top of it, bright, shiny. And you begin to go, kind of just like, ah, it's, it's, just too, it's just too much for me. It misses the subtlety of my experience. It doesn't get to the depth of my wrestling. It doesn't ring true to the kind of conversations that really are happening. It's, it's just too plastic or, or whatnot. And I have a lot of friends that they've seen the way that gets packaged if it's, if it's kind of overdone and, and we begin to react to the packaging and then we, we lose sight of the truth embedded in it as we move away from it. Does that make sense? I was in a fraternity back in college. I was a SIGEP, um, Sigma Phi Epsilon. I, I mean, I literally haven't said those words in 15 years or, or more. And in the fraternity... Um, we had this uh, concept, we had, we had like a, a logo called the balanced man. And the balanced man was something that probably the 50-year-olds that ran the fraternity, the national fraternity out of Roanoke created because they wanted, you know, the fraternity guys to be balanced men. You know what I'm talking about? So there was a, I actually won the balanced man scholarship. It means, it means less to you guys than it does to me. Um, it doesn't mean anything to me either. The, uh, so the balanced man... It had a logo, and the logo was this, this kind of black and white logo. It was like this Greek-looking shoulders and head of a, of a dude and kind of all turned, and, and these geometric shapes, like thin lines, like, you know, precision kind of lines over the top of this balanced man showing, you know, I think the idea was it shows that it's balanced man. Well, it was kind of it was painted on the wall in the fraternity hall, the balanced man, and it, for a bunch of 20-year-old guys, it was so kind of cheesy, even though at the heart of it, it really points to something good, right? Virtue and integrity and uh, being courageous and, and being hardworking and adventure. I mean, all of those things in tension. But, but the expression of it was so funny to us that when we used to drink, we would kind of mock the balanced man and, and then, you know, and then we would drink. You know, we'd be lushes in the face of the balanced man. Um, and so the there's something really interesting about how socially we react to things and, and even if there's something good in it or true in it, we move away. And what we begin to realize is what is cool is always, and, and what I mean by what is cool, it's what, what is desirable, what we want to be a part of, what we want to um, kind of join you know what I'm talking about? What's cool is always something migrating. So in high school, it's like um, this kind of jacket's cool, right? Why? Well, because I'm a part of the cool crowd, and we get to decide what's cool. And so we're going to decide that this jacket's kind of cool. 
and we're the only ones that have it because we thought it up and it's cool. Until about nine months pass and some freshman kid, um, you know, whose mom went out, bought him this jacket because she wants him to try and be cool like the other kids. And then you look at that freshman kid wearing that jacket and you're like, this isn't cool anymore. And so then you you move on from that and you go find something else that you're going to just decide is cool. Why? Because you're the cool crowd and you get to decide what's cool. You know what I'm talking about? The, the crazy thing about in the Christian world is that game happens, but truth doesn't morph. You, you see what I'm saying? We can culturally go through seasons where certain things we resonate with as Christians or we get excited about or we think it's cool or our crowd joins into or we're reading the book or we're talking a lot about it or it's, it's in our language and, and it's a part of kind of the Christian culture and, and then it kind of moves on. But, but the problem with that whole game being played in the Christian world is that what, if there's something underneath it that actually gave it value in the first place, when we're talking about the Christian faith and not just um, clothing or, or, or style or music taste, when we're talking about life based in Christian principle, the principle doesn't change when we tend to move on and find kind of a new thing, um, cause du jour. And they told me in the first service that means something of the day, right? Like soup of the day. Is it soup of the day? Soup du jour. Is that right? What? Okay. Someone just said, Ken, you're weird. I heard it. Um, uh, all right. So what I'm saying is, if you're like me, I like church because I know it's right. And when I do things that I know are right, it kind of makes me happy. And there's a couple of you that I actually like and enjoy seeing too, which helps. Um, but we play this game as Christians where we react to things or expressions, um, and, and I've struggled with, and I know my friends have struggled with, kind of plastic Christianity or, or, or weird Christianity. And it makes us want to move away from it. And so we kind of want to honor our faith more and be serious more with it that we kind of don't associate with the hallmark Christianity. But in doing that, there's a real danger that we miss the part of that that actually matters or the part that's true, and that's that um, we need to affirm people. We need to encourage people. That we have to kind of bring the positivity. We have to bring words of life. Um, you know, Ephesians 4.29, let no one... Um, unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. Like, we're supposed to bring life to each other. And so I think in sometimes reacting to things, we lose the part of it that, that's necessary. So I think the first part of this whole refresh others, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed, is just that idea that we have to bring encouragement. Life is good. Fullness of life is good. Affirmation is good. We need these things. They're supposed to be a part of Christianity. C.S. Lewis said this. Uh, he says, it's a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he or she can be. It's a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as you can be. Now notice what Lewis didn't say. Lewis didn't say you have to be completely happy. Or happier than the next guy. Or as happy as the other guy could be. Lewis is simply saying, within your power, there's a potential top end. There's a, you, you have the ability, if you choose, to be this happy on this given day. And if you can be this happy, then you ought to be this happy. In the Christian world, there, there's no virtue in being less happy than what you actually have the opportunity to be. And so it's an interesting thing, like C.S. Lewis is just saying, it's a virtue to manifest the happiness that you can manifest. I have kids now that are getting to the age where you talk to them about life and framing their thinking in their minds, and it's not just do this and do that, right? And so attitudes come into it. And so I've started using this um, Lincoln thing, you know. Hey, girls, do you know what Abraham Lincoln says? No, Dad, we don't know what Abraham Lincoln says. Well, Abraham Lincoln says, because they're studying 
like, I don't know, the presidents and stuff. Um, Abraham Lincoln says, you're only as happy as you choose to be. You're only as happy as you choose to be. And the whole idea, you know, I'm trying to tell, tell my kids that because there's a choice that we can reconcile ourselves to simple principles embedded in Christianity that say, all things being equal, we have the choice to be as happy as we can be or to be as positive as we can be or to choose to have an attitude uh, rather than worry or doubt or all these other things. Jesus said the same thing. Why are you always walking around worrying? Why would you not choose to divest yourself of some of that worry and replace it with trust, have a different frame of mind, different attitude toward it? And I think one of the things we got to realize in Christianity is that when we go out and try to nurture other people and affirm other people and encourage other people and bring refreshment to other people, refresh others, that there's a part of that that taps into the way God designed this thing to work, that it creates a climate that actually comes back and fills us as well. It's a fascinating thing, and I don't want to go too far down that road. I want to pivot just a little bit, Um, but we see that part of the whole thing is creating a cycle um, of encouragement. Now, I've, I've thought yesterday I had a really difficult day. I was really exhausted, and I told my wife, I said, wow, <laughs> if this is how it feels to be depressed, I really, for the first time, like, resonate with people that struggle with depression a lot. And I all of a sudden had empathy where I never quite had it to that degree. I was just really from an energy standpoint, just bottomed out. And depression, and I think um, lifelessness, are cycles that we can get into. And when we get into it, we spiral. And when we spiral, it just picks up more momentum and we seem to go further and further down. And one of the ways that we have to get out of that is we say, no matter where we're at, no matter how much we don't feel like it, no matter how little energy we do, one of the ways that we, we, we reverse the tide is not by focusing on the hunger or the need that's so prevalent, but on the simple rule that um, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. That when we choose to begin to spend or expend ourselves on behalf of others, to find ways to affirm them in their need, that it begins to create a different climate than we, we other, otherwise would have been a part of. Um, so this verse here in Proverbs is, a, is just that. It's... it's a proverb. It's a part of what we call in the Bible wisdom literature. And do you guys, I mean, what's the point of wisdom li- literature? Anyone want to throw it out there? What's unique about wisdom literature? It's real easy. It's stuff you ought to do. Like, it's stuff you should do. It's wise. Okay? What, what does that mean? What it means is simply this. These are things that if we do, we're wise to do, we ought to do, because when we act in this way, we're acting in line with the way that God has created the universe. God has created the universe to operate in a certain way, that it's programmed, it's structured, uh, it's routine and consistent. And when we act in a wise way, we begin to act in accordance with it, and there's different results that come from it, depending on which proverb we're talking about. So these are principles or rules that all things being equal, the more you engage or practice them, lead to a certain result. It's incredibly different than a promise, a proverb is. What's different about a promise? Well, a promise is a guarantee that if you do this each and every time, you will get this in return. It's a, a necessary condition. Does that make sense? It, um, one necessarily leads to the other. We mix these two categories a lot in the Christian world, proverbs and promises. We do it as parents a lot. There's a proverb that says, if we train up a child in the way they should go, they will not depart from it. That's a proverb. All things being equal... Nine times out of ten, if we really do a good job over time shaping, training, discipling children, that when they get to a certain age, they will hang on to some of that integrity, hang on to some of that character, and they won't depart from it. But it's not a guarantee. 
that's not a promise. So when we have children and we're trying to claim this and say, I'm doing these things and I'm raising my kid this way, therefore, they will never walk away from God, never turn away. And then when we, they do, we, we kind of have this crisis of faith and we wonder, God, what's going on? Because you promised. And God's like, one, I, I don't know that I quite see it exactly the way you do and how you raised your kid. I have some, some opinions on certain things you did, probably. Um, and two, um, it's not a guarantee. You see, the first failed parenting effort in the history of the world was God's. If we're going to say that we're rating parents based on the absolute success in obedience of the kids, then the first failed effort was God's. Does that, uh, I, I see looks, that I'm treading on theological water here. Um, that does not mean that God is not perfect, right? What caused the failure in the shared covenantal relationship between God and his children was sin, free will sin, on behalf of God's kids, Adam and Eve. And therefore, the perfect nature of this relationship, God with them, no shame, no sin, was breached and failed. So if we're going to say that all parents get, get judged um, purely by whether their kids uh, choose the right way or the wrong way, what I'm saying is the first failed, um, by that definition of judging, the first failed parental relationship would be God's. And so we can't um, hold each other up to the standard and say, it's so easy that if I just do this formula or read these books or tune into this web page, that my kids will end up perfect and never walk away. However, there is a principle that says all things being equal, if I invest into my kids, if I love my kids, that nine times out of ten, if I raise someone in the way they should go, they won't depart from me. Do you see the, diff um, see the difference between Proverbs and Promises? This is a proverb, and what it speaks to is the idea that God has created the world to work in such a way that we reap what we sow, that when we give, when we, when we pour it out, it's actually where we find that we receive, and it's counterintuitive, and it's paradoxical, and I think it's unbelievably profound, and it's necessary that we grapple with on a regular basis. This verse here is kind of what began me on this trek, and it's what we now at Antioch call, um, kind of embed in this mantra that we have called give your life away. But the idea is that seeking your own life isn't going to get you too far, but spending your life on behalf of others will. Giving your life away in, um, in, in Jesus' name will lead to an abundance of life in return, but seeking your own life uh, will come to nothing in the end. So we have this phrase, Give your life away. And a lot of us live it out. I think this church lives it out really well in this community and other places. I have a lot of friends that I watch day by day give their lives away. I've been trying to live this for a number of years. Just giving away time, giving away energy, giving away my dreams for the benefit of other things bigger than myself. Okay? And here's what I've come to realize. In trying to give my life away, I'm not less selfish than other people I know that don't do that, okay? I'm just smarter. I'm just smarter, okay? So I'm not, I'm, I kind of care about myself. I'm not any less selfish. I'm just a lot smarter because they actually believe that the best way to get is by getting, which is, which is stupid, okay? That's not the best way to get. The best way to get is by giving. See? So that's the difference. Um, if we understand kind of the way things are working here, 
Experiencing the fullness of life doesn't come in turning into a consumer, a five foot ten, 155 pound stomach that's just looking to consume. The best way to enjoy the fullness of life is by being a person made in the image of God that was made relational, that understands the give and the take and seeks to give life away, to value others as much or more than self and that in doing so, we know that there's something flowing in here that will bring in a a fullness and abundance of life that I won't get if all I'm doing is walking around with my appetite exposed and my hunger and my desire to just be a consumer and to have, have, have. We've done something really interesting with these phrases. I want to read you a couple things and we'll go from there. Um, Paul picks up something that Jesus said, and he quotes Jesus. And Jesus had said, it's better to give than receive. And Paul talks about this in the book of Acts, in chapter 20. He says, uh, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than receive. It's more blessed to give than receive. It's better to give than receive. We accidentally create a false dichotomy between these two that I think is really unhelpful. And try me on this one. When you hear that phrase, do we not normally turn it into these two categories? Giving is good and getting is bad. This one's good, this one's bad. Right? It's like a teeter-totter. Like, this one's bad, this one's good. When, in fact, it doesn't say that at all. It's a matter of degrees, not an either-or. What Paul is saying in quoting Jesus is saying, it's better to give than receive. We're, we're human beings, and we have needs, we have emotions. We, we know that it's good to receive. We all hunger and desire for it, do we not? But it's better to focus our energy and our actions and our intentions on giving than receiving. So we kind of create this false dichotomy of receiving's bad, giving's good. And then in doing doing so, we, we create a real tension for believers. Because if you go around going, but I kind of, I have some hungers and desires and I, man, so that's bad. It's bad for me to want. It's bad for me to need. It's bad for me to try to receive. Like, ah, I don't know if I can do this Christian thing. And you kind of bail out this way. Or you go, people that receive or people that want to receive or people that are happy or people that like happiness um, don't really get that it's better to give than receive. It's, it's all about giving. And these people become what's called ascetics where they, they're pleasureless, devoid of emotion people that just... Um, do out of duty all the time, not understanding that it's better to give than receive, but receiving in and of itself is not bad. And that one of the ways we receive is by giving. Do you see, do you see that? So we, we begin to understand that I think there's this middle ground in Christianity that we lose. Let me try and draw it out a little bit more before my batteries run out. Uh... Okay, um, so turn to Malachi, and we'll, we'll, we'll see this, kind of, I think, in the best way that we possibly can. Jesus says this first, as you guys are turning to Malachi. He says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It's another example of the same. Blessed, better, are those that are merciful, that those give mercy to others, because they're going to be shown mercy, and what they sow, they will reap. It will come back around. In Malachi, we see a fascinating instance of of God using the one in regard to the other. Malachi is towards the end of the New Testament, or uh, the prophets, right before the New Testament. And this is kind of a famous passage for a different reason. Malachi uh, chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse 6. Now this is like probably one of the most famous passages on tithing. It's not why we're going there. But, but listen to how this kind of puts this up. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Meaning, 
Um, you guys are always messing up. If I was prone to emotionalism, you know, I might have gotten ticked off already and wiped you out. You guys are lucky I'm like a parent that has steadfast love, and my love for you stays fixed regardless of your up and downs. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And then here God asks rhetorically, will a man rob God? Question mark. Yesterday, we put in an old movie for one of the kids, and it was an old DVD. It was back when piracy was like the conversation of the day. You guys remember that? I remember accidentally, I got into downloading songs the month that like all those uh, lawsuits came out. What year was that? Like 2001, something like that. You remember that? Like, I thought it was all legal. I've, you know, everyone was doing it. Yeah. It's like, oh, cool, I can download some songs. And I got into it like the month of it. I was a youth pastor. And then all of a sudden, all these like uh, lawsuits started coming out, you know, against grandmas and 13-year-olds and all that. And I actually went to the, an elder and one of the pastors, and I was like, listen, I got to let you know, like, about a month ago, I signed on this account. I was downloading songs. I didn't realize this was a big deal, but I, I'm like staying awake all night. I don't know why I'm saying this, by the way. Um, Statue of Limitations, I think, has ran out on it. Uh, but I'm, I'm like, listen, man, I'm laying awake at night, every, like, you know, for the last week, wondering if I'm going to get a knock on the door from somebody, like, you know, with this lawsuit. And I'm a youth pastor. I'm like, I honestly do not know. I just got to tell somebody, you know. Um, again, I don't know why I was sharing that. But so this DVD we put in this was made back in that, when that was like the conversation. And it has this commercial at the beginning of the DVD, and it's like, you wouldn't steal someone's purse, and it's a picture of a guy stealing a purse. And you wouldn't, you know, um, I don't know, punch someone in the face. You know, you wouldn't steal this. You wouldn't steal that. You wouldn't steal a car. And then it was like the person sitting at the computer downloading something. It's like, stealing music is stealing, you know. And then it said, stealing is bad. Um, And it was this whole message of saying, I think aimed at a paradigm shift, trying to speak to people back then. I mean, I think everything's changed so much. Who knows what's even what anymore? But I think back then what they were trying to do is get a generation to say, hey, that's not okay. You're stealing. God is rhetorically saying the same thing here. He's saying, look, you don't think of your relationship in, in terms of me as stealing, but I do. Can a man rob God? Yep, you rob me. But you ask, how, how, how do we rob you? We don't know that we're doing anything wrong. We're doing what everyone else is doing. We think we're doing right. We, we don't know that we're robbing you, God. I don't understand this. And he's saying, how, you, you're going to ask me, how do we rob you? And, and God says this, in tithes and offerings. In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. God then says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Your holding back what belongs me is a form of robbery. That's how I see it. You see it as, oh, I got a wife, I got kids, I got this, I, I'm tired, I don't have time, what, I gave to that, I gave to this, you know, Whatever we see it as, God is saying to these people in that day, he's saying, I see it different. I see you not seeing me. I see you not regarding me. I see you seeing that your stuff isn't really mine or doesn't have a connection to me. I disagree. And by withholding that from me, you're robbing me. So bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit. There's two pictures here. One is it's going to overflow your storehouse. We think of wealth as... Um, numbers on a computer screen when you check your bank account. 
And I don't know if I'm the only one that ever does this, but I've seen enough movies where those numbers start changing. That every time I look online at those numbers, I'm half believing that they could just change. You know what I mean? But that's where we see our wealth is in those numbers. In, the, in this period of time, wealth was in substance. It's in crops. It's in stuff. It's in things that came off the trees or in your fields. It's in gold or silver. It's stuff that you have to put somewhere because it takes up room and it weighs something. And God is saying, I'm going to bring in so much that your storehouses won't be able to, to, to hold all that stuff. Your three-car garages won't be able to contain it. These vines, uh, I was just somewhere where there was these orange trees, and it was like nobody was picking anything off these orange trees. And, and the oranges were just falling everywhere. And um, this picture is of grapevines not casting off their fruit. Everything is, is being captured and being taken in and, and being um, retained. It's wealth. And there's these unbelievable pictures. And God is saying, you test me in this. You give to me. You bring to me. I will affirm it. I will bless it. I will reward it. I will honor it. I will encourage it. And we begin to see a principle here. That God is telling us, um, I am not lacking in affirmation. I am not lacking in the potential to encourage. I'm not lacking in resources I can give. I am not lacking in anything. I'm not even lacking in the desire to bring about for you all of my joy in you. I'm not lacking for any of that. I just need you to get to the crosshairs here. I need you to get to where you can stand so that I can bless you. Because if you're not standing here, if you're over there broken or misbehaving or lawless or hurting others, I cannot affirm that. I can't encourage it. I can't give to it. If you're in fourth grade and you're making the teacher cry, I can't tell you attaboy. If you're racist and you're, you're making racist jokes and hiding your racism with a bunch of smiles and laughs, I can't laugh with you and get excited. About, I can't affirm that. You see what I'm saying? If you're living a morally lax life and completely missing that your body is a temple, that you were made in the image of God, and that everything you do in this world affects or harms either other people, yourself, or structures, and you're living a morally lax life, I can't tell you do more of that. I can't bless it. I can't affirm it. I can't encourage it. And neither can God. And and God is saying, "I, I just need you to get here. And when you stand here in the crosshairs, I've got so much I can bring to you. I can bless you. Test me in this. And we realize that these two extremes of thinking it's all about ourselves receiving or it's just all about giving and never receiving are blown away in what what God is telling us here. This passage, the reason I don't ever preach it is because it's abused. It's abused by the self-help kind of gurus and preachers of the day. And what I mean by self-help gurus and preachers are people that are only telling people what they want to hear to fill their bellies and be satisfied, but disconnected from anything to do with God. And so this verse turns into give more, give more, give more, um, because really it's all about get, 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 disconnected from God. And and what it really is, is tithe more, tithe more, tithe more, because you'll be wealthy beyond all, you know, imagination, and I want to buy a Learjet as a pastor. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, and this passage gets abused by kind of those self-help gurus and You've probably heard people talk against the self-help gurus. You've probably heard me talk against the self-help gurus. And what you need to learn here is um, don't listen to everything I say. 
Uh, we bring in a lot of guest speakers so that I hopefully won't mess you all up too bad. But there's a bit of truth in everything that self-help preachers teach. Heresy always brings with it a bit of truth. And so the self-help guys are seizing on the bit of truth, and they're saying what's in Scripture that you need to give and that God blesses. But they say it with impure motives. Now, in reaction to that, you get guys like me or others that go, um, I would tar and feather that preacher if I could. I don't want to be put in the same category as that preacher. So I'm going to go to the opposite extreme. I'm never going to preach that verse. I'm just going to tell you to tithe. Why? Because you should. Well, that doesn't work, so I'm going to say it louder. You just need to tithe. Why? Because good Christians do. Well, all of a sudden, being a good Christian doesn't feel very fun. It's not working. So I'm going to talk about tithing louder. Well, why? Well, maybe now I'll, I'll, I'll go to guilt because the first two things didn't, didn't work, appealing to better nature people. So I'm going to really lay it on thick this time with you people, and I'm going to appeal to guilt. And then I'll whip you real good so that you walk out of here and feel like you bled. You know, that's a good Sunday morning, you know, and you feel really horrible about yourself and your pocketbook's empty, but at least you got a good lashing. And you know what I mean? Like, and, and now I'm... And then pretty soon what I'm saying, even though I'm not abusing with bad motives what Scripture says, there's as much untruth in what I'm preaching as what that other guy was preaching. I've become on this side just as imbalanced as that guy was on the other side. You see what I'm saying there? And here's God in the middle going, people don't live by laws. Live by love, live by relationship, understand I'm your dad, that I love you. Uh, Matthew 7, you ask and, and you'll receive and knock and it'll be open and seek, you'll find. Why? Because a good father doesn't give a snake to, to a child that asks for a loaf of bread. How much more as a heavenly father who, who embodies love when you are in need and you're asking him, am I going to look at that and go, absolutely. Abso absolutely. And God's like, don't live by, by weird motives that cut me out of it as if you're a big stomach. Don't live by weird, pharisaical, contorted, like unhappy, frowny-faced Christians realize it's better to give than receive. Realize if you, test, if you test me in this, that I'll show you that I care about you. Um, realize that he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. This is the great paradox for me with the parable of the talents. You guys know that story? Crazy story. It goes like this. One dude's got $10, um, the master gives $5 to the next dude and then gives $1 to the last guy. So $10, $5, $1, and then the master says, yeah, go, go out with it. Um, and the $10 guy goes and invests it, gets another $10. The, the $5 guy goes and gets another $5. And then the $1 guy takes a whole different approach, buries it, and then goes and turns on the TV. Master comes back, looks at the $1 guy. The $1 guy's like, hey, listen, I played safe here. No matter what, I was going to be able to give you back that $1. That was good enough. I, couldn't, I can't lose here. I'm, I'm playing risk management. Uh, I kept your $1. No matter what, you got your $1. So, you, you know, you can't really be mad at me because you get, you, you get back what you gave me and, and all that. And then the $5 guy says, you know, I invested. I got another $5. $10 guy says, I invested. I got another $10. And God looks at the $1 guy and gets so angry and says, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. You didn't care about me and the resources I let you steward. You didn't care about others and the resources you could have brought to them. All you cared about was putting yourself in a position to where you could sit pat and turn on the TV. And then he says something really interesting. He honors the $5 guy that got the $5, the $10 guy that got the $10, because they 
invested, they spent, they labored, they worked, they risked, they wrestled, they cared. And God says to them, um, because you did that, I'm going to take all the $1 guys out there, collect all their $1, and then I'm going to give it to the $5 guy and the $10 guy that understand that, that I'm looking for people that will join me in what I'm trying to be about. And, and then he says this fascinating phrase, to him who has, you already got 10 plus 10, 5 plus, this guy's got like 20, this guy's got like 10. To him who has, more will be given. Now that, that seems a little unjust. I mean, isn't God a God of fairness? This guy's got 20, that guy's got 10. This guy's only got one. Doesn't seem fair. Wouldn't God, like, redistribute it? And By the way, I'm not talking about politics or money or taxes. I'm talking about God's blessing, okay? In this parable, um, we come, oh, it's not fair. Well, shouldn't everybody be together, you know? And, and, and shouldn't we, like, bring this guy up and level it out? And God's like, no, not at all. Not at all. These people that already have momentum in the right direction, I'm throwing gas on it. I'm affirming it. I'm blessing it. I'm encouraging it. They're in the crosshairs. They put me in the center. They're humble. And humility brings in this idea of submission to God. When you're humble, implicit in that is that God is at the center, not you. And that's why in, in Scripture, humility is always something that can be blessed. And so when we're right here, God's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep affirming you. Keep doing more of that. Keep doing what you're doing. I love it. This is great. I'm never going to run out of this. I could play this game all day long. Well, God, I've been getting this game for 10 years. My life is so blessed. Yeah, that's all right. We've got another 10 here. God, I'm miserable. I know. I know. Test me. For 10 years, I've been trying to get you to be obedient. For 10 years, I've been telling you simple things to put me first. Why will you not trust me? I love proving myself trustworthy to those who put their trust in me. I love proving myself faithful to those who are willing to put their faith in me. Why are you remaining in that place where I cannot bless or affirm you to him who has more will be given to him who doesn't have even what he has will be taken away from him unbelievable unbelievable stuff going on with Jesus and and Malachi and God and and Proverbs a generous man will prosper look at the, the way it begins prior to that the verse right above it. Proverbs eleven twenty four. this time. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. One gives and invests and gains even more. One withholds unduly, yet what he has begins to rot and comes to poverty. And then the beginning of the verse in question in, in verse 25 starts this way. A generous man or woman will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. There's a, a man named Christian Smith who wrote a book recently called Soul Searching where he talks and analyzes the generation... 15-year-olds um, and kind of 20-year-olds, uh, like the, the teenagers and 20-somethings now. And he, he did all these studies on them and had a whole team of researchers and then began to uh, collate the data and saw the trends emerge. If you do enough research, we all know that all, although generalizations don't hold true in every instance, they hold true in, in most instances. And so there were, there were generational distinctives that began to emerge. And this man created a phrase to describe the way this generation was seeing God. And it was moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. Basic idea was this. 
Uh, moral, it's all about being a good person, and I'm a good person. Uh, therapeutic, God exists to solve my problems when I need him to. Deism, uh, I don't need God uh, unless I need him to solve my problems. And so it's all about me pursuing my own course in life and my own happiness. And my relationship with God is either call him in when I need him or he needs to leave the lights on for me in heaven. Hopefully set the thermostat to 72 degrees so that it's ready for when I get there. It's a moral therapeutic deism. And the big idea in this whole thing was in all of that, God doesn't take the center. And so there's a scary thing going on in all of our self-help teaching or consumeristic culture that then affects the way we teach in churches. And, and we were growing up a generation, uh, I think it began, frankly, with my generation. This guy maybe just didn't study me and my buddies because he would have found the same thing. But we're growing up a whole generation of people that don't understand that the whole idea is to start with God at the center. And here's the amazing thing about this. If we don't intentionally put God at the center, choose to, desire to, necessarily something else will occupy the center. If we don't choose to put God at the center, we think we're just ignoring it or just not dealing with it, but the de facto thing is something else is emerging as or, or holding down the place of the center of our life. And so we, in this case, begin to think that happiness is all about pleasure and it's all about us, pure and simple. Over here, we think our happiness is found in our relationship with God, has everything to do with that relationship, with our worship of God, and our relationship with our neighbor. So our happiness is tied both to our honor and our praise, as well as our love and our sacrifice and our serving of others, and it all wraps together like that. There's no one who said it better, I think, than John Piper said it when he said, God is most glorified in us. He receives the most honor and praise in our interactions with him when we are the most satisfied in him. When we look to be happy in our relationship with God, it's when God knows that our heart is the most supple because there's nothing else at the center than God. If we're looking for our very happiness, our very happiness, everything we hunger for or want or desire, if we're looking for that in our relationship with God, He is the center. He is the one receiving the, the worship and the praise, and He is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. It's a fascinating thing. And when we get into this moral therapeutic deism, which is checking the checkboxes and doing the rote or routine spirituality, we feel empowered as if we're religious or spiritual beings. But we're not serving God. And my guess is the happiness we're deriving is not coming from giving our lives away, but rather trying to choose our way through life based on perceived cost-benefit analysis that we think will come to ourselves. So in closing, let me kind of bring it down. I, um, yeah, I've had a rocky couple days. I did a, a wedding on Friday. That wasn't rocky. Um, but I, I, I did a wedding on Friday, and then I was at a funeral yesterday that was in, in incredibly impactful. And the testimony regarding the young man uh, who'd passed away really touched me. Uh, the story of his integrity, his life, the way he approached other people from so many different people, it really touched me. So I went home last night and I was looking at Mary Joy. Mary Joy is my oldest. She's 10 and a half. And I'm beginning to ask those questions about what is she going to be like as she goes through life. And I thought to myself, if I could preach any one sermon to Mary Joy. I mean, have you ever thought about that? If you could preach any one sermon to your kid, maybe if, you're not, if you don't ever preach, maybe you don't have that thought. But, you know, you, you think, what can I preach to my kid? And there's a lot of choices, you know. I could talk about theology. I could talk about the gospel. I mean, my daughter needs to know that Jesus died for her sins. And, and open the, the way for salvation. And, and there's a lot of things you can talk about, but 
as I looked at my daughter and I kept thinking about the testimony of this young man, I thought, I really want my daughter to get this practical theology that life is not simply just about her and that although we love to receive and we're wired that way, that the way we approach life is to give in humble trust and submission to God, that that's where he wants to find us and that he will bless us and that when we do that, it will be blessing upon blessing and it will just fuel that. And then as we go through life, we will live with no regrets because of our relationships and because of everything else. And I want my daughter not to be the bad kind of selfish. I want her to be like me, you know, selfish but smart. Um, so I thought, I thought about Mary Joy and I was thinking about this sermon and, um, you know, and here's a humbling fact that it came up to me is I'm not as good as I used to be at this stuff. I mean, if you're a middle-aged family guy like me, maybe you understand what I mean. When your social time, the amount of just loose time you have socially evaporates, and your energy evaporates, and your time evaporates, and your money evaporates. It's hard to get out there and, and have the opportunity to refresh others. You know? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not as good as I used to be. Um, when you live as long as I've lived, when you've lived, you know, a certain, I mean, you know, I know I'm only three but I've lived long enough that I can compare myself to an earlier, better version of myself. You know, like you compare yourself to who you were 10 years ago, and that guy always wins, you know? And then you begin, like, always sharing stories, and you begin to notice that all your stories are from when you were in your 20s, you know? And you're just like, wow, my highlight reel is really outdated, you know? Like, I hope other people don't notice that all my stories of how great I am really are a decade out of date, you know? Like if they learn that, that might be a problem. Um, I'm not as good as I used to be. It's, it's a struggle. I think there's people in this church that are a lot better than I am. There are so many amazing testimonies of, of selfless people in this church. It really is amazing. Um, and so I don't know. I'm, I'm hungry to put this back in the, in the center and to think about one of my own life verses I'm hungry to be able to think about proverbial wisdom as it relates to my daughter and the desires I would have for her as she grows into adulthood. And then I'm hungry for us as a church that we would get this stuff. And so I kind of wrote this kind of as the end that maybe we would realize that love never fails. Love is giving, not stuffing into our own want or, not, or need. It's, it's easy to never fail when you give. The minute you give, it's like you won. If you're trying to get a meal, I mean, how many times do you go out to a restaurant and it's a fail? I mean, so if you're trying to stuff into your own belly, you're not going to get that with a 100% success rate. You're still going to be left hungry after most anything you do. But if you give, you never fail. Love never fails. And so today, um, give somebody a gift. Pay someone a compliment. Think about someone else's felt needs Take that last bit of energy you've got and tackle someone else's problems. Love a friend, touch a stranger, forgive an enemy. Encouragement is contagious. We reap what we sow. Our attitude does, like the cliche says, uh, determine our altitude. And it doesn't matter where you're at in life. God has determined it to be true that he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. May we give our lives away. Father, we, we don't do it right and we're weak and I just pray that you would supply what we need in our faith, supply what we need in our strength, supply what we need in our desire, motivate us, stir our passions, give us hope. Whatever you do, though, give us a, a big view of you that we would trust, we would believe that if we submit our life to you, if we're willing to give it away for your sake, we'll find it, we'll have it returned to us, amplified and extended and grown out in ways we never could have imagined. Give us the ability to be risk takers, to take all that we have, all that you've made us stewards of, and that we would run out 
recklessly with it. I pray in our struggles and in our depression and in our funk that we would not try and look to other things to fix it, but we would love our way out, that we would literally walk our way out of um, the tough spots because of our love for others and how that will radically transform ourselves, our, our environments, our cultures, our mindsets, our attitudes. I just pray you give us uh, the maturity and the wisdom to live truly. And we pray that in Jesus' name.